0: Hello and welcome to D2C Podcast. I'm Eric Dick. Today's cast revisits one of our favorite guests, Eric G. Sun Sunwoo, who founded his personalized nutrition startup Gainful, bringing it to eight figures, helping them navigate multiple funding rounds and an innovative retail partnership with Target, where they pioneered in store personalization. This podcast goes to the heart of the entrepreneur's journey as we follow Eric from the height of Gainful's crazy growth to the sandbox for creating Eric's new venture in the CPG space as he builds out Sobo Foods to bring health conscious and authentic flavors to the typically bland and low-quality dumplings you might find in your grocer's freezer. Expect a deep dive into the intricacies of navigating the retail landscape, the art of building a brand that resonates with customers, and the critical importance of product quality and customer experience. Expect a tasty dumpling. On with the show. I love the
1: kind of hand to hand combat of getting into additional retail doors in a specific geography like the Bay Area. I love going and doing demos in stores and feeding people our dumplings and seeing how they react to it. I love working events where we're on our feet all day and just slinging dumplings, spreading the good word, and telling people about the brand and telling people where they can go find us in grocery stores. Running a DSC company. Oftentimes, it feels like you can just kind of be boot behind your laptop for a couple of years and maybe even make it to a multi million dollar company. But with a frozen food company, you got to start out local, you got to hit the pavement, and there is no sitting behind a laptop.
0: If you haven't yet used Motion, the creative analytics platform used by top e com and D2C brands like Fiori, True Classic, The Farmer's Dog, Hexclad, and hundreds more to ship winning ads, Here's why you should try it out. Everyone knows that the right creative is the number one lever for success with paid ads. That's how you make money. But consistently shipping new winning creative, you're gonna need your media buyers and your creative teams on the same page. Right now you're probably spending hours tiring away going back and forth between Google Sheets and your ad platforms and tools, and then spending even more time plugging it all into different decks for the rest of your team. In a perfect world, you could have an elegant way to combine visual assets and performance data, So media buyers can save time and creative teams can get the details they need to make great ads all in one place and that's where motion comes in in seconds you can build powerful visual reports using data from your ad accounts you can monitor your performance metrics and see your visual assets in the same platform no need to go back and forth across multiple apps you'll finally have media buyers and creative teams working together to create and scale your next big winner if you're ready to learn how the best D2C and e-commerce brands use Motion to ship winning meta TikTok and YouTube ads, book a demo today or start a free trial at motionapp.com DTC. Even better, Motion offers a monthly subscription plan so you can dodge those annoying annual contracts. Get 50% off your first month when you use the link motionapp.com DTC on sign up. Eric, welcome back to the D2C podcast. It's uh, awesome to, to see you again here. Catch us up to start on Gainful and the Gainful story.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure being on last time, and hopefully this time we can make it even better than the last. Nice. The updates on Gainful are plentiful, but I'll try to keep it relatively brief here. I'm sure we'll get into it more as we get along on the podcast. Exactly a year ago, a year and a month actually, just over a year ago, I stepped aside from my full-time role at Gainful. So I'm no longer full-time at Gainful. I am merely a cheerleader, an advisor, as well as a board member. And I remain, of course, great friends with a lot of folks on the team, including, of course, my co-founder, Jahan, who is one of my best friends from childhood. That's something that certainly sticks with you. But I'm no longer in the day-to-day for Gainful. I help out a couple hours here and there, but I am full-time focused on a new business, which we can talk more about later, but the high level is that it is an Asian American comfort food company and we make frozen
0: dumplings. I am a huge fan. We'll go deep on dumplings um, amazing let's just let's dive in first of all on the psychological impact of your decision to step away from your baby in a way like talk about that that decision and and the process and what it's been like
1: totally the interesting part about leaving your own startup is, at least in my experience, and I'm, you know, N of one, there are many, many people who have done the same in very dramatically different circumstances. Often, I find from the stories that I hear in much more dramatic and traumatic circumstances than what I had done, but I wrung my hands about it so much and put so much emotional energy into what will this be like when I leave? How will people take it? What will the drama be? how difficult is the moment of telling the team and telling our investors going to be? That, yeah, it kept me up quite a bit before we actually started telling folks. But then once we started telling the team, once I told my co-founder and once I told Dean, our CEO, once I told the board and once I told our investors and then once I told the public, it was a lot of weight being lifted from my shoulders one layer after another. And the actual telling of folks was pretty cathartic and honestly pretty easy. Folks, I would say generally took it quite well. And a lot of the fears that I had about my moment of departure and what the quote unquote aftermath might be were were pretty much unfounded. Because the fact that I had wrung my hands about it so much and I had given so much thought to it and I had partnered really closely with leadership at Gainful to put thought into the transition plan meant that when the news was delivered, we delivered in a very thoughtful way and we made sure that nothing felt like the boat was rocking when i delivered the news and there was a solid transition plan in place so that we gave investors team members and even the public you know our customers the faith that nothing was going to change it was business as usual for gainful and that that ultimately i think from the performance of the company has been the case and i'm i'm very very grateful to the team especially the leadership team who was in on this from day zero that they were able to do it in such a graceful way and helped me pull this off in a way that I feel like has not and will not impact the, the performance in the company, but also made it a lot easier for, for me emotionally because the folks on the team are, are absolute rock stars. And they not only have they not missed a beat, they have improved on everything that I could have been doing.
0: That's so cool, and that's and that's partially you're doing as well. From the trajectory you left, the, you know, you, when when you did pull away from the business, it wasn't in a moment of crisis; it was in a moment of acceleration, and and you'd also put in place a CEO already. You'd sort of had this a CEO for ready so. to take the reins for you know for a while there. Um, so I think, I think it's a great example. How, how, what about mental? Like, I guess you did it because you have this deep passion for what you're doing next, but was Mm -hmm. there any part of your ego or identity that you felt like when you were not going day to day on, on gainful, or did you just feel accomplished that you had set it up in such a good position? It's still part of you. You're still a founder.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's still an early growth stage company, right? We're, we're certainly not out of the woods yet with gainful and there's so much work to be done. And if we're being honest, the point at which I step back from the day to day, there's probably way more hard stuff to be done in the future of gainful than there was in the lead up to my departure, right? Like, obviously, there's early, early stage days where everything's a grind, you're constantly getting knocked down, you feel like the company is going to go belly up at any moment in a lot of those early days. And that's, that's an emotional burden that's, you know, pushing a boulder up a hill in a way that's very different from what's to come next for gainful, but that's not to say that it's harder. It's, it's, I think, you know, maybe physically, emotionally, and personally a little bit more grueling, but in terms of the level of difficulty, the level of sophistication and the level of execution that needs to happen from here until the day that gainful exits, it's, it's incredibly complex and incredibly difficult. Still,
0: and inherently, because it, I think one of the reasons that the the product at, you know has done so well is that you're bringing this new concept of personalization, and so that's mm-hmm. inherently going to bring a whole other layer of of complexity potentially when it comes to merchandising, when it comes to uh, your product itself, how it's presented, how it has to be presented in retail as well.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and personalization, as you've seen as a DTC expert, has been a the theme of the last five to ten years, but it's still super revolutionary in every single category, new category that you bring it to, right? So companies like Function of Beauty did personalization for hair care. Companies like care of did personalization for nutritional supplements. And then now companies like Gainful are completely revolutionizing how people view sports nutrition and performance nutrition. And the fact that it's in a different category is, is really the kicker right because you're dealing with a whole different set of ingredients with suppliers with retailers with advertisers that you didn't have to deal with necessarily in another category so even though you know some people who view d2c from the outside in um, or investors may say like oh personalization you know that was that was a real trend everyone was doing personalization it's there's some level of derivative to personalization, the fact that you're doing it in a different category, especially when you go into retail means it's a totally different ballgame.
0: Let's talk retail, because you guys had a big big retail win in the last uh, six months or so. What, talk about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Earlier this year in, uh, in the, I think it was Q2 of 2023, Gainful became the first and largest personalized sports nutrition launch in the history of Target. So Target has been Our first and obviously most important retail partner that we've ever had, we designed a product line of personalized sports nutrition products for Target specifically, and they brought us into every single one of their doors nationwide, which is kind of unprecedented and even more unprecedented when you consider that we went in with double-digit number of SKUs. That is something that has pretty much never been done before, and that's what made our buyer at Target Tell us this is the biggest thing that he's ever worked on at Target and, you know, he's a lifer at Target.
0: Because, yeah, it's you're, you're, you're revolutionizing this concept of, of uh, you know, sp- sports nutrition, but also revolutionizing this concept of personalization in a retail environment. People don't always know. like, So I'm, I'm curious, how, how has that been accomplished where you're getting this concept of personalization across to the retail shopper so well?
1: Yeah, I, w- I would certainly encourage you to to chat with Dean, our CEO at Gainful, Jahan, my co-founder at Gainful, our CTO, or Courtney, who manages brand. He re- she runs everything brand at Gainful because they can certainly – Put into words much better than I ever could what this vision for Target is now since they do it so much. They evangelize the product in Target so much these days. But the way that we do personalization is, is certainly special. And I'll, I'll have my stab at it, but I would encourage you all to go listen to some podcasts or listen to some, read some writing from any of the current leadership team at Gainful. But we have a, essentially a four-step system in Target where the first step is you choose your protein powder base, that's plant-based or whey protein. You choose your flavor boosts, which is a choice between any one of four delicious flavors. You choose your functional boosts, whether that's get lean or build muscle or recover after workouts. And then you take that all home and you drop your flavors as well as your functional boosts directly into your protein powder container and you shake it up and you mix up a personalized blend at home with many different permutations that are functionally different than what we offer, on our direct consumer website we offer a deeper level of personalization on our direct consumer website but it's still dramatically more personalization than has ever been offered in any sort of retail setting ever and you can then complete your system by adding on a pre-workout or a hydration supplement as well which in target stores are not personalized however in our D2C site they are.
0: It's just going to be a thumb stopper, like a, a real world thumb stopper as well. When you just, you know, every, people are, are are have a shelf blindness or when it comes to like what they expect in their retail experience and they come up to what I imagine is some kind of like end cap or something where you're learning about this ability to actually like, you can't really, you can't really personalize anything in the retail environment. Is there, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of like anything you can even really personalize in the retail environment right now.
1: Yeah, it's 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 as far as I know, the, the only thing, and I think it makes a lot of sense for sports nutrition and performance nutrition specifically right because historically the aisle is a place and this goes back to the to the origin story of how me and jahan even started the business it has historically been a very confusing overwhelming place more so than i would argue many other sections of the grocery store right i mean the frozen dumpling section of the grocery store confusing and overwhelming but you know not necessarily difficult to understand right the supplement aisle is pretty high stakes. If you put the wrong thing in your body, you can get pretty sick or you can have exactly the opposite outcome of what you're looking for out of a performance nutrition nutrition product. So companies like Function of Beauty certainly paved the way for us in Target where they had a multi-step personalized system for hair care. But again. It's, it's a different level of emotion when it has to do with things like body image, when it has to do with things like weight gain, weight loss, and when it has to do especially with something that you're putting inside your body, not just on top of your body.
0: Can you think, you mentioned a couple of brands that have done personalization really well there. Are, can, do you have any examples of brands that have sort of tried to do personalization, but kind of came up short? And and what, what was the reason for their failure?
1: There honestly hasn't been, as far as I can tell, really good case studies of brands that have come up short necessarily. And also, you know, if I had someone, I wouldn't want to drag yes, the mud call publicly yeah, yeah. on this podcast either. Yeah. But but really there there wasn't as much buy-in from the retail side to do personalization before companies like Gainful and Care of and Function of Beauty started to come around. And it's still not something that most retailers are able to wrap their heads around unless they're very forward thinking and they see the future very clearly like Target saw with us, right? Because it's, it's a lot to ask of a shopper when they're busy grocery store or the department store is a crazy place. And you really similar to how you advertise on pay-per-click online for direct consumer companies, you only have milliseconds to capture someone's attention. And in store, you have to do that. And also, show them the value of the product and also explain to them how the thing works, right? Educate, Which is, yeah. yeah. The education is, is a pretty big barrier to entry when someone is just having a long day walking down the aisle, trying to find something that fits their budget and doesn't take a, a ton of cognition to understand While you're standing there in aisle, just trying to get home, right? Just trying to check out and get home. And yeah, that's been, that's been a big, uh, I think it takes quite a bit of activation energy to convince retailers to see, your vision for personalization. And now there are more and more retailers, as we've seen from the interest that they've shown gainful, who want to do this. But a couple of years ago, it was it was an impossible mountain to to try and get over.
0: Who on your team did it? Who managed, who on your team managed that target relationship? And was it just a matter of like a legendary presentation and they just got it? Like, what was that process like of like, educating target into what you, what, what, how your vision for what you wanted it to be?
1: It was certainly a team effort. Everyone pitched in and did different parts, right? Like we have different parts of the team that are responsible for formulation of the products. Um, Originally, I had drafted up, I think, 20 plus SKUs that we wanted to pitch Target on. And we coordinated with our our buyer as well as our broker. And they were like, you got to you know, cool, cool your jets here. There's no way you're gonna get 20 plus skews in there, and also no one's gonna be able to understand 20 plus skews. You need to pare this down and make it simpler. And you know, I was I was pulled kicking and screaming into reducing the number of skews, and it's totally been the right move. Definitely a more condensed. How set many makes sense? Uh, I think we have 11 skews in Target. Currently. Okay. Yeah,
0: Um, and then it was just a matter of a great presentation where people understood the vision. Where Target was like, "Yeah," because I think that's the magic there is when they when you get them on your side advocating to be like, "Yeah, we are looking for something different." I guess they're always looking for ways to break up banner blindness or shelf blindness, as as I'm saying. So, and anything any any area where they have a product revolutionizing a category is an opportunity for them to make more sales.
1: Yeah. And it's, I mean, I, I won't speak for the folks at Target who brought us in, but strategically it's of importance as well, because you want people to have an experience when they go into Target stores to shop. If they wanted to just go in and get the cheapest thing they could and not have an experience, right? They could go to other places for that. But Target is a, it's a destination. There are Instagram influencers who post their Target hauls and having this kind of newsworthy, cutting edge, brand aligned product for Target is also a halo effect for them. Um, I also want to back up really quickly and say something that I didn't fully emphasize as much as I should have. Yes, the product and the pitch and the execution of Target were a team effort, but a lot of it really falls on the shoulders also of Brian Devlin, who's our chief operating officer at Gainful. He's currently on paternity leave with the new cute baby at home. And and we're, we're certainly feeling, feeling his absence, but that man pulled out all the stops, went to the ends of the earth to make this execution perfect. Um, and there are a ton of other people that I can shout out as well, but I did wanna specifically call out Brian for, for really being the point person and the point of contact for, for all the target conversations. Um,
0: and that's a big win. Uh, that's a, that's a big organizational win. What what I I I will actually I would love to take you up and have someone on Gainful we can go a little deeper on it. But just before we jump on to Sobo Foods, what's the retail vision from Target? Are there other sort of destination retailers that you're warming up to this concept to? Without giving away too much, I will say the vision for Gainful is to do
1: everything and be everywhere. We we really do think that we have a pr- platform, a brand, and the team to be able to take us into. All the different retailers that you could possibly see personalization working in. We think personalization is going to become more and more prevalent within all the different retailers, from the cutting edge ones that we've already partnered with to ones that you Costco. might be surprised. Right. Yeah, exactly. I, right? I bet. And then, in terms of products, right, like you can tell right now, we have personalized protein powder in stores, but there are way more things in protein powder that deserve to have this personalized touch and deserve to have the gainful brand service, like creatine. <sighs> Could be,
0: could be. I'm excited um, getting on the train. Okay, let's jump to Sobo because I again, I'm a I'm a huge per, I'm a dumpling fan. I've been a lifetime dumpling fan. Lived in lived in uh, lived in Thailand. Lived in Korea. loved dumplings in in both of these places. Um, talk about when this itch when you when you're you're riding you're building this incredible startup, and then all of a sudden you start having this itch to be like I gotta do something. I gotta do dumplings as well. Talk about that.
1: Yeah, Gainful was and remains the Best job I've ever had, right? Gainful made me who I am today. It's very much my baby. It's something that I care deeply about, and I could not have asked for a better first job out of college. It was a first job out of college also because it was born from just like, you know, I told you last time we spoke. It's It was a weird little college side experiment. We didn't think it was going to go anywhere. It was just this fun little startup adventure. But one thing morphed into another and, you know, we went to Y Combinator, we raised venture money, we built a team, and these are all opportunities that I think any early young entrepreneur, first-time entrepreneur would would die for. And I wouldn't change anything about it. I, I loved every single minute of it. One thing, however, that I did not talk a whole lot about during my time at Gainful was the fact that my my personal passions, everything that I thought about, quote-unquote, outside of work when I was, quote-unquote, not on the clock for Gainful, right, was about food and food sustainability. I, as an undergrad at Georgetown, essentially crafted my field of study to be around food sustainability. I wrote my senior thesis in college about the future of food, about agriculture, about the business viability of companies like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat. And these are companies that back in 2016, 2017, if there's an undergrad who's writing their senior thesis on that, that's like pretty deep into the nerddom of alternative protein and sustainable food. So it's something that I've been super passionate about for a very long time. And I think it honestly stems from the fact that I grew up in California where we create so much food for the rest of the country and for California in the Central Valley primarily. And we use so much water and we use so much land and we create so much livestock as well. And it's something that I would grow up seeing happen all around me growing up in Central Coast of California But never really think twice about until I went to college and started thinking about the environmental ramifications of how we produce the food that we eat. And also from speaking with one of my favorite professors at Georgetown, Professor Mark Giordano, who inculcated in all of his students this idea that every single time you sit down to eat, you are making a political statement. Every single time you sit down and you fill your plate, you are essentially voting with your dollars on how you want our food system to be structured what types of foods you think are important and what the environmental effects of the food decisions you make every day are. And that was very special. That was very eye-opening for me. So it was something that I certainly were, was spending some sleepless nights thinking about um, even while I was building Gainful. And once Gainful got to the point where I felt like the team was really, really amazing and could go on to do things that I could never even dream of accomplishing with me at the helm it felt like the right time for me to also begin exper- experimenting with what my next venture would be and i knew it had to be in sustainable food super cool
0: we'll talk a little bit because we're we're now in the we're in are in a different phase of of alternative proteins i would say with with the news of uh, impossible foods uh, you know declining in sales things like that like how do you view the space uh, in this sort of post hype environment Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I think I think one of the big problems that alternative protein, sustainable food in general has been facing the last couple of years is because so many of the alt protein companies are raising money, developing products and going to market as if they were tech companies. Food is fundamentally different. I think of all the food companies in the world, Gainful might be the most techie, right? And for that reason, I think there's there's more cause to, to believe that Gainful will take over the world and more cause to believe that Gainful will be able to raise at higher and higher valuations, even though at its core, it is a CPG company. For food companies, right, where you're selling primarily into grocery stores, maybe it's refrigerated, maybe it's frozen, maybe it's ambient – The economics, the path to profitability, the speed of scale, the distribution, the unit economics, they're all fundamentally different. And at the end of the day, you're not trying to convince tech investors that you're the next big thing. You're convincing people with stomachs and mouths and taste buds that you're the next big thing. And what matters there is, is it delicious? Does it cost an amount of money that I can justify putting on my children's plates? Is it healthy for me, right? These are the things that matter to consumers. But when fancy Silicon Valley executives go out and get pitched on changing the future of food, revolutionizing how people eat, like,
0: yeah, food it's is a, a, it's food is a multi, multi
1: trillion dollar industry. So
0: it, to me it's the it's the Tesla effect right people like you look at the G- number of cars on the road between Tesla and any other car company versus their market cap it's it's kind of comical but it's because people are buying the vision of the way the, the world is going kind of thing and and I think that's probably that's what happened probably in it, you know in the impossible with the impossible foods case it was people saying okay this is the future of food it's going to be the fu- it's going it, to what's interesting is that hasn't changed like people are going to need you know more sustainable protein sources so like I feel like the underlying fat- of why those companies, you know, got a lot of the hype are still there. But I think your point about just like making sure it's delicious. I I, like looking at at your, at Sobo foods at at your dumplings, you're not pushing the fact that they're vegan or that they're alternative protein really heavily with the brand, which is interesting. It's sort of like, they just look like really high quality, uh, really high quality product that happened to be plant-based. Was that, was that part of your thinking rather than like really riding heavily the, the vegan train? Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Sobo's products are frozen dumplings that are incredibly delicious. They are very easy to make at home. They are nutritionally dense with up to nine times the protein and seven times the fiber compared to your average frozen dumpling. And yeah, they happen to be hundred percent vegan, but that shouldn't be the only differentiator. Really the big differentiators here are that they're delicious and they're way better for you than all the stuff that's currently on the market. And, you know, to your point about All the other all-protein companies, I think another major point of differentiation and inspiration really for Sobo is it's an Asian-American comfort food company. Over the last 30 years, Chinese cuisine, Asian cuisine has been the highest growing quote-unquote ethnic food category in the United States. Immigration from mainland China has been the greatest source of immigration in the last couple of decades as well. And you can see these demographic shifts happening in the US, especially in also media, where you see the soft power of K-pop, where you see food in restaurants trending more and more toward boba teas and things that people in a couple of decades ago would never have considered as popular American foods. But the demographic shifts of the United States also have led me and my new co-founder, Adam in Sobo, to have a pretty strong point of view that comfort food is changing. And comfort food in the next 50 years is going to look dramatically different from comfort food in the past 50 years for the typical quote unquote American because the typical quote unquote American has changed so much, right? And all the companies that were focused on healthier, better for you, better for the planet foods, I won't say all, but the vast majority of the ones that Adam and I saw were focused on foodways and cuisines that for me and Adam were not the foods that we grew up with. They were not our comfort foods. They were not the foods that we would see on our childhood plates. We saw a ton of venture money and smart investors and smart founders pouring their blood, sweat, and tears into creating the next generation burger, nugget, sausage. And for me and Adam, we didn't grow up with burgers, nuggets, and sausages on our plates. We were eating frozen dumplings. We were eating potstickers. We were eating steam buns. We were eating noodles. We were eating burritos. We were eating all these foods that we feel like we're not getting their moment in the sun, especially in grocery stores that were, as far as we can tell, still primarily packed with ethnic foods that are high in sodium, high in sugar, high in refined carbs, high in cholesterol, and using almost exclusively pretty low quality factory farm meat.
0: It's, it's funny, I think back to, like, Chinese, Chinese food has been in America for a very long time, but it's been this, like, monolithic, westernized version of Chinese food. And obviously, there's been, you know... Um real chinese food everywhere as well but just in with your product to even you know you have multiple skews i know it's not fully you know, they're not personalized dumplings yet but just the fact no. that <laughs> that they're they're deep cuts they're 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 japanese dumplings they're they're mandu from you know uh, korea or wherever they're specifically culturally specific uh dumplings which is your favorite
1: my favorite is actually our japanese curry and potato flavor it's a it's a sleeper hit and it's because i grew up eating a lot of japanese curry my mom I was raised by a single mom, and she didn't have time to cook a meal from scratch, which was rare. Which is amazing, given that she's a single mom. But on the rare occasion she didn't have time to cook a meal from scratch, she would make me Japanese curry, and it's something that sustained me throughout college. And now we've taken all those flavors and packed them into a a convenient and healthy, high protein, high fiber pot sticker.
0: I love it, and and com- the idea of comfort food is is and juxtaposing that with this. With the healthier option, because I think that is the evolution of comfort food you're talking about as well, where people are getting more and more conscious about what they're willing to forego, you know, or the, the nutrition they're willing to forego by by having comfort food. So being able to combine comfort food in with a new nutritionally dense product, and the, but the thing is, it has to taste great. No one's gonna eat it. You know, no one's gonna mm-hmm. eat, like dumplings are one of the most satisfying things to eat, and no one's gonna no one's gonna keep buying them if they don't taste amazing. Exactly. Exactly. If I, if I gave you a, a life-giving pill
1: that would immediately extend your lifespan, but it tasted awful, you still wouldn't have very good retention on it. Right. Like, true. That's, that's just the well, truth.
0: Talk to Fisherman's Friend. They, they have been doing that for a long, that tastes awful, but it works. So they, it, it can be done, but you've got to, you've got to be Better a masochistic. A supplements
1: category than, than for, than for a food category, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, we also brought Sobo into this world because we fundamentally believe that Asian food, Asian American food does not have to be cheap and it does not have to be unhealthy. I think there's been a prevailing notion that one Asian American food, comfort food, and frozen food all have to be dirt cheap. They have to be made with low quality ingredients. They have to be quote unquote dirty and they have to be unhealthy in order for it to be good. And we want to flip that narrative on its head because it's just simply not the case. There's been thousands of years of tradition and now hundreds of years of new Asian-American tradition where we can create nutritionally dense, delicious, invaluable food for people that they're willing to pay up a little bit for. And, uh, and that's the narrative that we're trying to really change here.
0: I love it. And it's, it, and it's a big jump. It's a jump from, it's a jump from the supplement space into, in, you know, into the frozen food aisle. Talk about I feel anytime a founder who's who's gone through because zero to one is such a hard phase and, and you say that there's a lot there's a lot of hard, more complex operations ahead, but just those early days are are so so interesting. What have you applied from gainful uh, in Sobo Foods, uh, even though it's such a different category?
1: An emphasis on the customer, right? Really understanding what people want, why they want. it. It's an understanding of the health conscious customer. Obviously, Gainful and Sobo have pretty different target demographics, but one of the uniting threads is that there are people who care about what they're putting in their bodies. That has been something that I've taken away, and I think maybe the most important part that I've taken away is the importance of building a brand that resonates with people, that gives people something to care about, that stands for more than just a product, and building an amazing team. Right now, we're not in the team building phase of Sobo quite yet, but I can already see how important and impactful that will be to our mission because we have such a, a clear vision and mission for, for Sobo that we were also able to crystallize for Gainful in the last few years as well. And that helped us so much in finding the right team members to join and help us build something really special.
0: But your go-to-market strategy is quite different, right? With gainful, it was sort of totally. born of the of the corn times or of, of those times, I guess maybe even before that. But it was a very D2C play to start. And this is not, right? This is a this is a full retail play to start.
1: Yeah, yeah. And the distribution and go-to-market strategies for Sobo versus Gainful are very much dictated by the products themselves, the temperature states that they have to exist in, as well as the differentiators for the products, right? So for gainful we were one of the first to do personalized sports nutrition. We had to do that direct to consumer online because we had to ask people questions about themselves in order to personalize the products to their needs. With Sobo, we have three set SKUs and they're all frozen. So we find that it's a little bit, there's a bit of cognitive dissonance for companies that have an environmental mission, but then still do direct to consumer and ship their products all around the country Mm. with $20 worth of coolant that took, fossil fuels to create, talking about dry ice, with $20 worth of packaging that took trees, uh, paper, and fossil fuels to create, and then air miles, another $20 worth of shipping for it to get within two days so that it doesn't defrost to all these different far flung places within the country. Like That all feels a little bit like cognitive dissonance to us when ultimately the $20 worth of product that you're shipping is also standing for reducing meat consumption, industrial animal agriculture on people's plates. So that's why we haven't really done our own direct consumer We partner with a third party that aggregates demand so that they're more efficient on all different levels to offer shipping across the West Coast. But we haven't even gone beyond the West Coast because shipping into the East Coast right now is just resource inefficient for us. So our go-to-market for Sobo is very much local, Bay Area first, retail grocery. Getting out there, me in my car, driving and talking to mom and pop, local independent owned grocery stores, talking to the people who own those grocery stores and asking them if this is something that they feel like their communities that they're feeding would want to see in their store.
0: Grassroots. How's it going?
1: It's been really fun.
0: I think I, I have a
1: bit of a masochist streak in me where I love the the kind of hand-to-hand combat of getting into additional retail doors in a specific geography like the Bay Area. I love going and doing demos in stores and feeding people our dumplings and seeing how they react to it. I love working events where we're on our feet all day and just slinging dumplings, spreading the good word and telling people about the brand and telling people where they can go find us in grocery stores. Like these are all, these are all very fun things to me. I think I have a pretty, I think I have, have the stomach or a high tolerance for that sort of boots on the ground work at least right now in this stage of my career. That's awesome.
0: So no ads yet. You're not running ads for the product or are you doing any ads that you know around your retail presences?
1: We have not spent a single dime on paid marketing. It's been a breath of fresh air from the early days of Gainful where I think me with my background as a paid marketing guy jumped too early into Facebook and Google ads for for Gainful and then we had to spend uh, spend some time basically unlearning that in a sense and So all of the investment that we've done for Sobo right now is how do we get more dumplings into people's mouths? Because we know that once you've tasted it, you're going to love it. So our MO is really just getting more dumpling samples into people's mouths, having them taste and believe it for real in person. And that kind of in-person aspect of the business is also very different from Gainful because running a D2C company... Oftentimes it feels like you can just kind of beep boot behind your laptop for for a couple of years and maybe even make it to a multi million dollar company. But with a frozen food company, you gotta start out local, you gotta hit the pavement and there is no sitting behind a laptop. Most of my day is is spent out there in the field. Love it.
0: Um, I'm in the funnel right now, I'm just about to get back into a frozen meal kit environment, I think. I'm I'm just, I decided I want to get back to, I want to get back to one of these HelloFresh things. I'm going to give it a try again. Do any of those companies ever do cross selling where you could include, because I was just thinking about a way that you could potentially partner with one of those companies who's already doing the refrigerated aspect of it and just tag along.
1: For sure. Yeah. I think there are milk kit companies that uh, also, there are some cool ones I think that focus more on local. And I honestly believe that at a smaller scale, it's a more sustainable business model than the ones that are national. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's an option. I haven't explored that with Sobo quite yet, but it's certainly an option.
0: So one of the questions I'm asking right now is, what's a part of your tech stack? And I know you're you're sound, you're a little bit lower tech right now because you're going your your path <laughs> to the pavement. But what's a part of your current tech stack that you couldn't live without?
1: I'm going to I'm gonna give you an unconventional answer here. The one thing that I couldn't live without in my day-to-day right now is this portable camping freezer that I bought online. It's called a Bodega cooler. I'm not being paid by Bodega, but Bodega, if you're listening, I would love to get some commission dollars here. It saved my life. It lives full-time in the back of my SUV, and it's how I bring products, samples, frozen dumplings everywhere around the Bay Area because I'm spending... A ton of time in my car and having this portable freezer that plugs into the cigarette jack in my car and stays frozen has been an absolute game changer for me. But if you want a more conventional answer or an answer that maybe is a little bit more actionable for your audience here, um, I'm looking right now at my screen. Typeform, huge tool for us. It's really, really crucial for us to constantly get feedback from our customers. Typeform makes it really easy and really beautiful for us to do that. I also have been using this email um, app called superhuman for the last couple of years that makes it really beautiful and easy for me to manage my email. It makes me feel way faster on my email, which I love. It is a little bit pricey. I think it's like 30 bucks a month and it's kind of like a trope amongst Silicon Valley founders to be using superhuman at this point. But of all the Silicon Valley tropes that I can lean into, this is the one that I feel least shameful about doing so far. Very cool.
0: Um, and then, I'm in, in the stage of your business uh, where a freezer is your is your favorite part of your tech stack, what would you do with fifty thousand dollars? You're not. You're not. Most people are just like, I'll oh, pour it into ads. Or I'm curious if we were to give you a fifty thousand dollars grant for for Sobo, where would you be using that to to activate your growth plans?
1: A couple different places. Uh, we actually did actually receive some some amazing grants. You know, not fifty thousand dollars, but more in the more in the ballpark of tens of thousands of dollars to attend a couple trade shows. So we're going to be at Fancy Food, which is a Las Vegas trade show in January. And we're going to be demoing our product to customers, to buyers at grocery stores, to potential investors and partners at that trade show. That's a really great way for us to get our name out there and make a splash on a national level with Sobo as a brand, and then we're also going to Expo West, which is kind of like the Super Bowl of food trade shows. Everyone goes to it; it's massive. It's in Anaheim, and that'll be in March. And we also got a um, we we are we're being supported to to go to that as well, which is which is fantastic and an opportunity that not all CPG entrepreneurs get to have. Um, the other thing that I would use it on, and this kind of goes back to what I was saying about the most important thing right now at our stage being getting people to try the dumplings, is demoing. So getting stores to invite us in, set up a table, fry up some dumplings, and give people who are shopping at the store, who happen to be there at the time, a bite of dumpling and say, go find us in the freezer aisle. That is by far the most elbow grease, but most rewarding part of operating at this scale right now. And some people will look at that and say, well, the ROI can't be there because the people that you're selling dumplings to, maybe you'll sell like 30 bags of dumplings in in a day. And it's maybe a couple hundred dollars worth of revenue. And if you think about the time that it took for you to get to the grocery store and set up and the labor, as well as the cost of all the free samples that you're doing, like you're barely breaking even there. But that's, that's not the point for us. The point is we're a local business. We're here in the community. We need people to understand what we're all about. And there's no better way for you to stick in someone's memory than to have a conversation with the founder of the company and have him or her hand you a dumpling to try out. And also for the dumpling to taste freaking incredible, which is what Adam, my co-founder, he's an amazing food scientist, what he's been able to do. The dumplings convince everyone as, as soon as it crosses their lips. And that person then, you know, they shop there, they will hopefully be coming back week after week and picking up more and more dumplings so that the lifetime value of what they've given to the company is much greater than what you might measure in ROI on the day of. And the immeasurability of the ROI is also something that, you know, we, we definitely have to learn to live with a bit as, as a, a person who has come from a direct-to-consumer company where we have metrics on absolutely everything to a retail environment where it's often hard to even get a clean sales report.
0: Dumplings are the most sampleable product. I know I have been, I have been sold, on, like at Costco, I feel like I've been sold multiple times on buying dumplings just by eating a dumpling in-store. What's, what's the sauce situation here? What, what, how, how are you saucing these dumplings? Uh, I agree that
1: tasting is believing and I'm very proud. And I think Adam should be very proud of the fact that anybody who has tasted our dumplings has fallen in love with them. The sauce situation, you can go a couple of different ways. When I do demos, I normally whip up something at home, which is a little bit of black vinegar, soy sauce, chili oil, a little bit of sugar, a little bit of garlic puree. So it's a um, a delicious, but not not super complicated, dumpling sauce. But honestly, also in a pinch, oftentimes during demos, we just serve it with a little bit of soy, and that's amazing too. Nice,
0: cool, Eric. Thank you for catching us up on your journey. I can't wait to uh, to hear from you again uh, at towards the end of the year. What are what are your goals with Sobo in twenty twenty four Would you would you say?
1: Couple different things: going to trade shows and getting buyers at bigger retailers such as say Whole Foods or Sprouts to take note of us. We don't want to go national, so you won't be able to see us in New York next year, but that's very much by design. We want to focus on our community here in the Bay Area. We want to be the best, the most notable, and the most loved Asian American comfort food brand in the Frozen Isle across Northern California before we even start thinking about setting foot in Southern California and then beyond California. But please do check us out, subofoods.com. You can order us for delivery across the West Coast through our third-party partner feed app and you can also get us for local delivery here in the Bay Area through our partner Neon as well as most importantly finding us in all of these amazing local independently owned grocery stores around the Bay Area. Please go support your local grocery store and of course buy some dumplings and support Sobo as well.
0: I'm going to cook some up for lunch. I only have meat based ones uh, right now but once I get down to the States we'll do a dumpling transfer I'll get on uh, on the Sobo train. I'm very excited.
1: Amazing. Perfect.
0: I love to hear it. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at directtoconsumeralloneword.co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C Podcast. We'll see you next time.